Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. If you had an opportunity to opt out of the rat race and set up a modern homestead, how would you go about it? Hey, it's Tim Young of the theselfsufficientlife.com, and today you'll hear my wife Liz and I share our step-by-step process in establishing our modern homestead. Welcome to episode 16 of Self-Sufficient Life. This week's episode is a little different in that it doesn't profile another homesteader or farmer. Instead, it begins the process of profiling us. By that, I mean my wife, Liz, and myself, and the life of modern homesteading that we're enjoying. Now, many of you have followed our journey since we left the rat race back in 2006. You read the farm blog we maintained years ago, and about a quarter of a million of you listened to our podcast from 2010 to 2012, many from all corners of the world. And tens of thousands more of you have read my books, most notably The Accidental Farmers and How to Make Money Homesteading. Still, many of you are unacquainted with our story. So here it is. In a nutshell, we lived in suburban Atlanta in 2006 on a golf course with a strict HOA. We'd never farmed, but that didn't stop us from buying over 120 acres in rural Georgia, leaving behind our careers in corporate America and teaching to become first-generation farmers. We raised pretty much anything that walks, grass-fed beef, meat chickens, laying hens, rabbits, pigs, geese, ducks, dairy cows, and just for fun, donkeys, guineas, and guardian dogs. We built a great customer base from Atlanta to Athens, Georgia, and love hosting farm tours for up to 100 people a month. And then, we sort of went into seclusion in late 2012. We stopped blogging and podcasting, though we continued farming through 2015, selling grass-fed meats and farmstead cheese. But in 2015, we stopped farming commercially and began the process of migrating from being farmers to being modern homesteaders. It was a lengthy process that included successfully selling our artisan cheese business, finding a new homestead property, and relocating all our stuff. I've heard from many that ours is a story you want to know more about, so we're going to start sharing as much as we can to help you. Help you do what, exactly? And what do I mean at the end of each episode by asking you to opt out today? Okay, here's what I don't mean. Just up, quit your job, and move into the wilderness. I mean, that's too drastic for almost anyone and doesn't make much sense. What I do mean is to open your eyes to recognize how dependent we all are on the system, the electrical system, the food distribution system, employers, or promised pensions for income. We've all been raised in a world that has not only taught us to become consumers, but rewards us for doing so. But it also enslaves us, as few of us know how to do anything that can keep us alive and safe. Things like growing and preserving food, hunting, foraging, and fishing, building and repairing stuff, understanding how to respect and handle important tools, like firearms. Like I said, we were all raised in this dependent society, where now it's weird if you actually can take care of most of your own needs. I mean, it's weird that it's weird, right? But it's true. And while it's not our fault that we were all raised in this system, it is our responsibility to do something about it once we recognize it. 
okay, sure, you can be as drastic as we were and move to the country to generate your own income, food, and entertainment, and you won't regret it if you do. But you don't have to. There's lots more you can do to be self-sufficient wherever you are. And that's my real message, to inspire you to do what you can wherever you are with whatever you have. So to help you better understand what's possible and why we do what we do, my wife Liz is going to join me for this episode as we share with you the critical criteria we chose for selecting our homestead location. Next week, I'm going to be back with a profile of another self-sufficient life, and you're going to love the story. But starting with this episode, I'm planning on Liz joining me every other week as we share with you our self-sufficient life. Okay, so hold on. I'll be right back with Liz. Hi, Liz. I see that you don't have your pajamas on. I'm surprised to see that. You're actually in clothes. And you still have your pajamas on. Well, that's exactly right. So welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast room. It's been a long time since you've been here. Can you even remember what it was like back when we lived in the city in suburbia? Um, vaguely, but not very well. It's only been 10 years. What do you mean only? 10 years is a long time. It's been 10 long years. <laughs> So remember, we moved from Atlanta, we found some farm property, all because we went on a horseback riding trip and we wanted to go move to the country. We had no other plans, but we just found some property, 120 acres, and we wanted a place that we could have some animals, have some dogs, do some hunting, and that's about it. And somehow we went from that all the way out to farming. So remember our farm, and you know, for people who don't know about it, you know, can you describe it? What did we do? We did a little bit of everything. Um, we had a herd of cattle that we raised for grass-fed beef, and um, we also rotated katahdin and sheep in with them for grass-fed lamb. And we had pigs in the woods foraging for acorns and tubers and all kinds of great things. And at one point, we even had a grazing hog. Um, <laughs> their breed called Large Black, and they were in with the grazers, with the cows and the sheep, too, and that was pretty funny. We went through a lot of breeds of hogs. We, we started with Berkshires, and, of course, we raised some Large Blacks, and they're so friendly. You can put a leash on them and take them for a walk like they're a dog. And, of course, we raised hundreds of Ossobal Island pigs. And then we also had all the poultry. We had chickens, ducks, turkeys, guineas. We even had peacocks, but yeah. they were just pets. We didn't raise those for food. Yeah, we would love to have peacocks again, but they're a disaster around a garden. Yes, I could not keep them out, and I didn't want to cage them up. I loved seeing them free range around. That was the beauty of it. They would sleep every night on the roof of our house. Yeah, so we sold all of our farm products to you know some great people in and around Atlanta, uh, Athens, Georgia, everywhere in between. So what did you love about being a farmer? I loved being outside all day long, every day, doing hard work. As strange as that, that, that sounds, because, you know... Most people don't like to do hard work. They avoid it. But once you get into the routine and you're working for something that you love, you know, to improve your land or to raise your animals, then it's not work at all. It's just, it was great. You're, you remind me of the guy at the end of uh, Office Space. He's outside making bucks, fresh air. That's right. Pretty sweet, huh? Yep. This isn't so bad, huh? Making bucks, getting exercise. So, I, I mean, I liked, um, I liked the customer relationships a lot, too. I liked... Um, you know, um, I liked hearing why people wanted to reconnect and find food, and they weren't as crazy as we were. They didn't want to go out and just get land and start farming or something like that. 
So I miss a lot of those kind of relationships that we had. Yeah, that's true. We met some really great people. But we stopped farming. I mean, after working so hard at it for a number of years. I mean, so let's talk about, you know, why we stopped farming. And what did you not love about what we were doing? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's something that we did not love about it, but I think that when you decide to make a life change, such as we did when we moved to the country and such as we did when we decided to stop farming at such a large scale, I think there's a lot of different reasons that come into play. So the farm had gotten really big. Um, if you remember, our original goal of moving to the country was so that you and I could work together, maybe have some kind of a small private family business, but mostly just spend all of our time together. and. You would think we'd be able to do that if we were both on the farm all day, every day, but it didn't turn out that way. Um, it had gotten so big that one of us was either off managing apprentices and interns or, um, you know, customer relations or doing some, you were in front of the computer doing marketing and sales and sending out emails and all of that kind of stuff. Or podcast. Or, yeah, or podcast, while the other one was out, I don't know, you know, running fences or giving the chickens water or something. And... It, we never really found that we were working together. Mm. And the only time that we were together was when we were doing deliveries. And at that point, we just kind of felt like truck drivers because we were on the road all the time delivering because right. we lived about two hours from the big city. Yeah, but you know, I, I'd actually forgot about the emotional impact of that. You're, it's not just the deliveries. You got to remember, I did all the livestock hauling too. So it's catching up animals, pigs or sheep or cows, and then hauling them to the USDA processor, then driving back. And that was, you know, anywhere from one to four hours, depending on what processor we used. And then it was going back, what, a week or two later, depending on how long, you know, we would dry age uh, the meat, bringing it back. And then I would back up the trailer to you and the apprentices, and you guys would have to, we would have to count all the packages and unload it and put it in our walk-in freezer. And spent hours in the frigid walk-in freezer. You would look, yeah, you all dressed up in your big snowsuit to go My in Sasquatch there. Sasquatch suit. <laughs> it's Bigfoot! <laughs> and you would be in there It'd for, be like 90 degrees outside and I'd be in a winter hat and big gloves and right. snow boots. <laughs> I think that's the that's the part of farm. A lot of these things, of course, were new for us. And I think they're new for anyone who starts farming. And I think a lot of customers, of course, you know, don't understand that and know that because how would they? They're not out there farming. But a lot of the farming is that kind of stuff. You're bringing back those packages and you've got to count them all because we would sell those online. We would allow people to pick and choose. They want this roast, that roast or whatever. Put them all in the system uh, for our meat CSA. And then, you know, once we take the orders, then you would put your suit back on. You guys would go in there and pack up the orders for the meat CSA delivery which could be a week later or whatever, then we'd load everything back on the truck and we would do our all-day delivery. I think the, um, I guess the straw that broke the camel's back, if you say that, was when our daughter was born, though. And I really had to spend a lot of time inside, obviously, because you're not going to bring a newborn baby out and all the elements and everything. But you were still doing all of the work on the farm. And mm. so then we saw each other even less. Right. And the times that... You really needed to be there because these are, you know, major moments in our life. These are memories that we're creating to see, you know, your daughter's first, whatever it was. Right. You'd be out, oh, got to go make cheese, got to go flip the cheese, got to go do a delivery. And it found, I found that we were even farther apart, not just you and I, but our whole family. And that just, 
isn't what we had envisioned for our life when we decided to move to the country. And it wasn't something that we were willing to tolerate. So she was born in mid-2012, and we knew, obviously, you know, almost a year in advance, you know, nine months in advance that she was coming. So what we decided to do back then was to start to change our farm life. And, you know, remember back then we're doing all kinds of pasture poultry, so we're pulling chicken tractors. We had two egg mobiles with about 800 layers out on pasture at one time. Remember all those crazy chickens? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember before we had a fence around our yard and yeah. the chickens would end up like on uh, our porch and you'd try to walk out the front door and you'd just step in chicken manure everywhere? Uh, that was terrible. I know. Welcome to farm life. I know. And I remember the ducks even more. Remember we'd walk out and the ducks would be like in front of our house. We'd have like a few hundred ducks and they start quacking they got so used to us feeding them that as soon as we would open the front door of our house we'd hear they were worse than a dog i mean it was crazy at one point there were 400 of them out there right in our front yard quacking at us but uh, you know at one point we had i think we had four apprentices at one time living on the farm and we provided housing for them as well so it wasn't just the animals and the customers um you know um, and the marketing it was also managing the people and dealing with the animals and dealing with deaths and dealing with everything else and I, I didn't want to miss a minute uh, being with you and being with our daughter, Maisie. So um, we decided to reorient our farm. And so what that meant was pick the farm enterprise that we thought would allow us to make the income we needed on that piece of land, but give us the most time together. And it pretty, became clear you know, pretty, easy, pretty soon for us that that was farmstead cheese because, uh, you know, by milking the Jersey cows and by turning that into cheese, it not only – is a reasonably lucrative farm enterprise compared to some of the others. But uh, it allows us potentially to have time together because, you know, you could envision in the cheese operation, we could at least get some time together. And we built a little room, like our family room, um, off of the cheese operation. It was just like a small kind of closet. (laughs) But we built that and put a couch in there. And I could bring our daughter up and, you know, while you were making cheese, we'd be up there and play and whatever. But, um, you know, it's still after... Not too long of that, um, we got a big distributor because we decided using a distributor would uh, ease the burden of having to do all the deliveries and even some of the sales, if you can consider that. Although when you have a distributor, you're still quite responsible for marketing and selling your product. Um, But the distributor felt pressure for us to get bigger and bigger because he kept getting more demands for our products. And so even that, we couldn't keep it kind of small scale family farm. Yeah, and it sounds like a good problem. Like, you know, you know, the distributor and customers want you to get bigger and to make more, but that's not why we moved out there. So we were always torn with, well, we want to farm. We wanted, again, I started farming because of the land. The land needed the, the animals on the farm. But that didn't mean that, you know, we wanted to become a big farming operation. So we were always torn. But when our daughter, daughter was born, you know, that made it clear to us, okay, what do we have to do to maximize our time together? And the answer was, let's focus on farmstead cheese. Now, what that meant for us was that we had to then deal with all the other animals. So we basically sold an entire herd of registered Murray Gray cattle, and we were able to do that no problem. We found a great buyer. They found a, they had a great home. And I'll say, as it relates to cows, I mean, I've never lost a penny on cows. I've always made money. So whatever we paid for our Murray Grays, we were able to – uh, use their offspring for beef for many years and then sell the entire herd, which had then grown for much more than we paid for. And the same thing happened later when we got to our Jersey cows. It was the same thing. So cows have always worked out to be a, um, 
<laughs> a cash cow. <laughs> it was really hard for us, though, to say goodbye to all of those animals, um, especially for me. I was really yeah. emotional about it. Every time we would sell another group of animals, it would just break my heart. Um, but I just had to keep the, the end goal in mind. But one thing that I am glad that we did was that we were very careful in selecting where our animals went. So just like you said, we sold the whole herd of Murray Gray cows together. We sold our whole herd of Jersey cow milk, milk cows together. Um, and we picked them places for them to go where the farms were similar to ours, where they were going to be grass fed and mm. rotated and blah, blah, blah. Well, we had a, we didn't have a herd, but we had a large group of livestock guardian dogs that had spent their whole life together. And we found one home for them that was, you know, within an hour of our farm where they could all go be together as well. Because they were a pack. There's right. no way we could split them up. We right. actually even, we gave them away right. because it was so important to us that they all stay together. And that was a lot of dogs for one person to take on. And so um, we just asked, you know, if there were people that were interested in having the whole pack and we looked at each farm that they were going to, and we made the selection of the one that we thought was going to be best for them. Right. You know, so those are a lot of the things that we did. But in terms of, you know, why we wanted to do those, do those things to, to begin with, I mean, part of it was our daughter was born and we wanted more time together. That's why we focused on Farmstead Cheese. But, you know, later we actually, you know, got out of everything farming, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, do you remember what those reasons were? Well, one in particular stands out in my mind. Um... As I've said already, everything just got so big. Um, and even publicly, we had gotten so big. You know, people just had read our blog and listened to our podcast, and we had had so many farm tours. Um, you know, we would have 100 people out at a time on the farm tour or different events and things that in our area, a lot of people knew a lot about us, um, which is fine. I mean, we don't have anything to hide. It sounds like we do, but we don't. <laughs> but um, we lost all of our privacy. Right. When your house is in the middle of your business, your farm and your cheese operation, as you know, most farm families are like that, um, for some reason, people don't respect your privacy anymore. And so our first Mother's Day, you know, I was so excited. It's, you know, my first day to celebrate that, you know, I'm a mother and you had the whole day planned out. Um, we were going to plant flowers uh, with Maymay, our daughter. And so we were outside, it was a gorgeous day, and we were out planting flowers, and all of a sudden a car comes driving up. And they go right past the cheese shop, they go right through all the pastures, they come right up to our front door. They go right through the red gate that says, no tours, no visitors allowed. Mm -hmm. Unless there's previous appointments, right. right. And this woman, you know, nice as could be, innocently gets out and says, hi, I'd like to look around your farm and buy some cheese. Right. And we're like, well, <laughs> There's no events today. There's no tours. The cheese shop is not open. You know, what are you doing here? Right. You know, well, we were very lucky and very fortunate over the years. We got a lot of publicity. Remember, I mean, CNN came out to the farm. The New York Times came out. You know, a lot of newspapers, you know, had did stories on us. I mean, we were really fortunate about that. And when we started making cheese, we were even luckier. We won a few awards. And she came out after she had read about us. I think we had won... Um, like the best food in the South from Garden and Gun Magazine or something like that. And she had read about that and it happened to be Mother's Day. And she, she decided to just drive two hours to come see our place. Now, didn't visit our website because had she visited our website, it says no tours on our website, no visitors allowed. Not that, not in a rude way, but just to let people know that those are, those events are on certain dates only. 
and you know ignored that and ignored the sign at the front gate and our driveway was a half a mile long I mean it's, it's a 3,000 foot you know gravel driveway that winds over a creek and through woods and stuff like that and just you know navigate it up and I'm they're trying to plan a Mother's Day for you, and here's somebody who wants to, you know, very nice lady, but, you know, interrupt our Mother's Day so she can, you know, enjoy looking at some animals. And it happened again on Thanksgiving. We had just sat down for Thanksgiving dinner with family that had traveled for hours to come and be with us, and there's a knock on the door, you know, in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, someone wanting to come look I around the farm. About that. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted to buy milk, I think, was that customer. But, you know, it just... It really rubbed me the wrong way because we did so much to involve people in the farm by having so many events and tours and, you know, putting it all out there and everything. But it just still wasn't enough. It seems like everything that we did was just never enough. Yeah, you're right. And I almost hate hearing us say that. I mean, it's totally you're totally right. I mean, it was just way too many of those episodes. But it makes when I hear us say that, it makes me feel like, man, we're just rude or I know, know selfish. <laughs> yeah. And and we're and we're not. I mean the one one thing Really, I, really we're not. <laughs> I mean, I I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and the big difference of course about a farming business versus any other most other entrepreneurial activities is if you form quote unquote a real business, you know, brick and mortar business and you go to work and you've got employees and stuff, that's over there. And then you come over here to your home and people don't necessarily and automatically know where you live. But, you know, if you get publicity, you know, I've got publicity before, you know, in, in newspapers and in, in real businesses, it's not like they can then come find out where you live. But when you're a farmer and you you do that, then people want to come share that. And and I get it. I, I get why people want to go experience that. But it was just too much for us. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that privacy was one thing that we said, how do we change that? And we had gotten too big and too much exposure that we could never change, that we could never make that go away. So um, we started focusing on farmstead cheese, um, and we wanted to, you know, make our farm life a little bit simpler. But there were other things about the property that just weren't right for us in terms of our homesteading mentality. I mean, remember we built this giant house? Well, when we moved there, I mean, we came from living on a golf course in a community, you know, a subdivision. And our house was huge, and our lot was small. And that's because you spent all of your time inside, you know? Right people that live that way, you rarely go outside. And so we tried to replicate that when we moved to the country, we built another really huge house and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, But we were never in it. We were always outside. And so the house was just a lot to heat, a lot to clean. There were rooms we never even went in. Yeah, it was a big mistake. We didn't, you know, we, we were, we wanted to move to the country, but we at first brought some of our urban mentality with us. So, I mean, I would definitely give that advice, and I and I have in podcast to people. When you're moving to the country, definitely prioritize the land, and you know have a small but functional you know house. And a lot of what you need a house for anyway is storage. That we do in outbuildings anyway. We don't need that in the house that's heated. Yeah. So, so we didn't want that. And of course, you know the fencing was a mess at the other house. You know, and, and we're responsible for that because we set it up. But yeah, there was, was nothing there when we started. Yeah. So it, we never had a master plan for homesteading at the other property. So we hodgepodge put a fence around the garden, and then another one somewhere else around the bees, and it created all these rectangular lines that were impossible to mow. And of course, we weren't spraying Roundup or anything like that. So it was just always a disaster trying to keep the weeds at bay. Well, and plus we did everything, you know, on such a small scale budget. We tried to bootstrap everything. And so 
things were really done piecemeal um, because when we got there, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do. So we were like, oh, let's get some cows. Okay, throw up some fence. Oh, we need a garden. Okay. Um, oh, I didn't know the garden needed a fence around it. Let's put a fence around that too. You know, And it just more and more things started popping up all over the place. And it was right. so hard to take care of, to yeah. mow and everything. Yeah. And so the bottom line is, you know, once our daughter was born, we said, wait a minute, we want more time together instead of all these farm enterprises. So we streamlined everything to focus on farmstead cheese. And that was fine for, you know, a year or a period of time. But it became clear to us that, you know, honestly, you were right all along. You said in the old podcast years ago that, you know, there was a, you had a hermit mentality. I remember you saying like six, seven years ago, and you'd be happy to live in the woods and be a homesteader. And I said, you know, that's crazy. But now I think I've even gone more extreme than you. I totally agree with that. You were totally right about it. Ah, wait, wait, say that again. <laughs> well, I'm going to edit this out, <laughs> but you were totally right about it. And so, you know, we said, wait a minute, why don't we become homesteaders, which is what we want. And to do that, it means that we had to go through a very, you know, lengthy process of selling the farm. But uh, why? I mean, why couldn't we just change our life there? Good question. That's what I asked you. Why couldn't we do that? <laughs> You know, well, how are we going to change the privacy? We could never change that element of it. We also had way more land than we needed as homesteaders. Now, we had 120 acres, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'd like to have 120 acres, but 85 of it was open pasture, and it forces you to use that open pasture for either hay or bush hogging or uh, grazing or whatever, and then you're farming. That's uh, what you're doing, and that's what we didn't want to do. Remember that? I mean, there would be like seven days straight that you would be out on the tractor in 100-degree heat, either bush hogging or remember when you were cutting hay, trying to maintain all of that hay equipment. Right. It would break every time. Oh, it was a nightmare. And I know you can get people to come in and hay for you and all that stuff, but the point is it's still a responsibility. You, it's, it's not like a woodlot where, you know, it, you have a lot less maintenance on a woodlot, of course, um, you know, then you do open pasture. You got to do something with it or you're going to be overrun with weeds. So the land, given our mindset of we really want to be as self-sufficient homesteaders, not not neurotic about, hey, we want to be we want to be the settlers and do everything ourselves and grow <laughs> our own grain and everything. But we wanted to, you know, um, be relatively self-sufficient and live a private life. And Easier we, said than done. Right. Well, and where we lived there didn't work for us. So we went through we went through a mindset shift and said, we're going to sell the farm. So it's easy to say that, but it divides into two pieces. Basically, you have your farm business and you've got to divest of that and you have your farm property that you have to divest of. So we actually had to set up the farm to sell. So the way we did that was we sold the Murray Gray beef cattle together. We then uh, sold our entire herd, which was over 30 Jersey cows, together to one farm. And same criteria, make sure we found a good farm and did real well. And before we did that, I had switched us from farmstead to artisan cheese. And that means that you buy the milk for cheese making. Now, this worked out really well for us locally, too, because there are some dairies in Elbert County, which is where we were running our operation. So we were able to use local milk for our local terroir cheeses, but to buy the milk and transport the milk over and then sell the Jersey cows. And that allowed us to then not have to do the milking twice a day, but I picked up the milk twice a week and we continued the cheese operation. The next step was, as you said before, as you alluded to, secure a 100% um, distribution agreement to sell our cheese. So we cut a deal to get all of our cheese bought, signed a you know multi-year contract for that. And all those things together, allowed us to package a artisan cheese operation that we sold to a really nice couple in Atlanta that wanted to continue to do what 
we did, which was to take that brand, uh, continue it, and to expand it. And, you know, that's been over two years now. That's what, you know, they bought, and that's what they, you know, are continuing to do. So we went through, through that those entire steps. It was a lot. It took us about almost two years to actually do that. We kept farming, you know, until mid-2015. And then yeah, we it was like a slow death. <laughs> slow <motion>. <laughs> <laughs> like every week there would be, okay, now this is gone. Okay, next week, now that's gone. <laughs> and it's like slowly you just kind of saw the farm crumble apart. It was really sad, actually. It, it was very sad. It, for me, it was horrible for a period of time because I would do what you wanted, basically, which is, can we move to my homesteading life? Are you life? blaming me? <laughs> I, I am, I'm accurately describing my perception of the events. And so I would, I, that's what you said you wanted years ago, right? You wanted to have the life we have today, right? Right, of okay, course. Okay, so that, I just, you know, when you come down to the reality of it, I mean, we put heart and soul into that place, you right. know? I mean, we really thought that was going to be our last move in life, our dream place, you know? And we had such a connection with the animals and with the land and with the business and the customers. Right. And yeah, it was hard to see it all go. But like I said before, we just had to keep the end goal in mind. Well, it's one of the things that people, you know, maybe they, maybe other people are smarter than we are and they know the answer if they're in suburbia and they're going to opt out to become farmers or whatever. But, you know, you don't know some of these things until you do them. And you, you have to find out what it is that you really want, what's causing you to leave the rat race like we did to get out there. And what we wanted was to be closer to nature and to have some privacy in our lives so that we could live the three of us, you and I and our daughter and live our lives together. But we didn't, you know, at first we took a step to, to the country. We thought we wanted to be in the country, but we didn't know some of the other things. But it brings up a good point is that people that opt out of well, even that don't just anyone involved in some sort of a farm business, there isn't usually an exit plan. A farm business is usually, you know, your family business and farms have been passed down through generations, you know. And so exiting a farm business was really quite difficult. Yeah. And I mean, emotionally more than, you know, the actual tasks that we had to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, anyway, those are all the reasons of, you know, why we opted out of our farm enterprise. And once we did all that, it was time for us to find a new homestead. So we'll talk about that right after this. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Layman's started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Layman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Layman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's for a simpler life. Find them at layman's.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. Okay, honey, so we're back and we're going to continue the story about how we migrated from the golf course to the farm to the rural secluded homestead that we are today. So we decided that we wanted to move and we wanted to find a, a real homestead or we wanted to create a real homestead 
rather yeah. than find one and create because you know they don't actually exist anymore they they really don't or you or if they do they're these weird places that are in the middle of the woods and they're completely off grid i mean there's all these homestead shows you can watch that you know and the process for us finding a homestead i mean it basically took us a couple of years i mean you would think it'd be simple that you just go look for a property you kind of know where you want to be but the, I, the way we kind of did it, if you look, think back about it, and this is designed to help anybody else who's looking for a homestead property, we created three kind of criteria categories, not three criteria, many criteria within the categories, but three categories. One was, what are the macro criteria for the new property location? Two is, what is the micro criteria for the specific new property? And three, this was really helpful to us. There were things that we had learned from our rural farming experience already that we knew weren't critical in looking for a new homestead. So we kind of listed those. So let's go through what some of the macro criteria that we put in place for ourselves for a new homestead when we moved. Well, I mean, the first thing that we knew without even thinking about it was that we needed to take, take on no debt. We haven't had debt since we moved to the farm. Um, and we weren't going to start now, that's for sure. Right. So, and I know that not everybody's in that, that position, but you know, you try to, you want to try to get in that position. I mean, there's ways to do it. You can buy a, a camper or a trailer or whatever and put it on a piece of land. But for us, we said that whatever homestead we're going to have will be debt free. You buy the home, you buy the property, everything. And so that meant we had a strict budget right? and so, we absolutely didn't even look at anything that went over that. Why tempt ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. We're not. Bill Gates or Tom Cruise, we can't stick a big bunker in the ground. So, you know, fine. But, but we established criteria that were right for us. And the first most important thing for us is we will not incur debt because not having debt on your shoulders means that you don't have to make as much money. So that means that you can spend more time together as a family and doing the things that you want to do. So beyond no debt and that strict budget, what was what else was our macro criteria? Well, we decided how close we had to be to family. Um, where we were originally living, we weren't that close to family. You know, um, they were an hour and a half to four hours away. Um, but what we had decided was that really anytime we went to see family, um, it was almost always an overnight trip anyway. Right. So we knew, well, if you're going to spend overnight, then as long as we can get there within a day, then we're going to be there overnight anyway. So yeah. we kind of made a circle around, you know, our family and said anywhere within that area would be acceptable. Yeah. And our parents are five or six hours apart anyway. So, you know, wherever we picked, we were going to be, you know, a, a, a ways away from someone. So I think you're right. We, our, our criteria were kind of, we'd like to be within like a six hour drive of our parents, if we could, our family to get to. And, you know, we were flexible that we, four hours was great, you know, seven or eight hours as possible. But it mean that it meant that we weren't going to move to Montana, Idaho or Alaska or something like that. Yeah. And that actually was the most limiting factor for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, another thing is we we preferred a slightly cooler garden zone than what we had in uh, northeastern Georgia. I mean, we, you know, where we were, it was really, really hot and dry and dry in the summers. And it was really, really wicked cold in the winter times. I mean, it's strange to say yeah, that. Yeah, why have the cold if you're not going to have snow to play in? Right, right. We didn't have that. So we would have preferred, we didn't want, we, you know, we've lived in Massachusetts for a long time, that kind of thing, but we didn't want to go back up to New England. Love New England. Um, you know, beautiful, beautiful country, a lot of great things, but that's not where we wanted to, get, to be, largely because of, you know, you know, the family and also more of the preparedness mindset that we have for privacy needs. We just didn't want to be in a, you know, highly, you know, densely populated area. So that didn't work, but you know, there's a lot of ground in between, you know, uh, Georgia, Texas, you know, Minnesota, New England, 
all that kind of stuff. So, and we prefer to higher elevation. Uh, you know, that is going to um, probably give you you know cooler temperatures and a little bit more rainfall. Um, but we also wanted a house with southern exposure. Yeah. Well, I wanted at least 1,200, you know, foot elevation to 2,500 foot, at least in that range. Because, uh, you know, when you talk about apple growing and chill hours and when you talk about uh, you want to grow wine grapes, so these are the kind of things that you think about when you're doing some just some self-sufficient homesteading. And, you know, if you're below that elevation for wine grapes, you're going to run into Pierce's disease and you're not going to have successful crops or you're going to be forced to you know, grow muscadines in the South. And I didn't want to go that route. So, I mean, those are, you know, again, this is our criteria list. This is like our letter to Santa. So these are the things that we'd like to have. Doesn't mean that we're going to get all of these, but these are things kind of in priority order. And the Southern exposure allows you to do, you know, passive solar, or at least, you know, consider doing solar panels and solar power. If you have great exposure, if you're and it also means that you can have warmer temperatures in the spring. If you've got northern exposure, you're on the north face of a mountain or whatever, I mean, you're going to have some really cold temperatures and you're not going to capture solar energy. And, um, you know, we wanted to find a place that had low taxes, but um, we were looking rurally. And so the taxes are going to be pretty low in those areas anyway. Yeah, really, really low. I mean, you know, taxes... Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day in Massachusetts. I mean, and he's got a look a little lot up there, a house, a little lot on the river near Boston, whatever. His taxes were twenty two thousand dollars a year. What? And, yeah, and my taxes when I lived in Massachusetts, you know, fifteen years ago were eighteen thousand. I mean, it's ridiculous. And you know, you can you know the property or well, the property we have now is you know a thousand dollars a year, sixty acres type thing. It's you have to work a full time job just to pay your taxes. You've got to you've got to earn in that up there like thirty five thousand dollars a year just to pay your property taxes. Then you got to earn a lot more money on top of that to pay for your food, your car, and everything else. It's crazy. Wow. But I want to talk about rainfall for a second. I mean, I know you skipped, you know, you kind of brushed over that. Um, rainfall was really important to me in looking at a property. And rainfall is tough when you look at it statistically because you tend to look at things like where we used to live gets averages 52 inches of rain a year. That's a lot of rain. And so you, when you're looking at property on a piece of paper, you think, wow, that's really good. But you have to look at uh, the frequency of that rain and, uh, you know, what happens in periods when you really need it. And where we lived in, in Georgia, I mean, that rain in the summertime, we, we there were periods where we would go two and a half, three months with no rain. And that's when it's 110 degrees. So that's really hard on your crops and on your animals and um, your you know, garden, your garden oh. yeah, on everything. So what I wanted was it wasn't just, you know, ideally 50 inches plus of rain, but I wanted some assurance that it rained frequently. And, uh, you know, like in the summertime, you would you could count on rain. And I know that's not a guarantee, but, um, you know, there are there are places where it's much more likely and, uh, you know, we were fortunate that we we found one of those places. So, yeah, that plus uh, low taxes. I didn't want to I wanted to move to a place that had either low or no restrictions on building. I don't want to worry if I, you know, put up like a little, you know, lean to shelter or a small barn or whatever that, you know, I'd have to, you know, you know, fight with local you know regulators or whatever. And, um, you know, in a lot of places, if you get real rural, that's the case. You don't have to worry about anything. You can do whatever you want to do. And, you know, finally, we wanted a state or an area that was at least friendly to homeschooling, right? Yeah, that was new to us because when we had looked at moving to the farm, we didn't have any children. And so we never even considered the school system or, you know, the area's values in terms of public or private school. And um, now that we had a child, that was really very important to us. We had already decided that we wanted to homeschool. 
And we had quickly learned that where we were in Elberton, there were no other homeschool families. There were no homeschool groups, no co-ops. <laughs> right. There weren't even kids that you could have a play date with because they were all in daycare because it was a blue-collar town and everybody, both moms and dads, were working full-time every day. So we wanted to find a state that had some more homeschool groups and opportunities that we would want to use in the future to, you know, help our daughter to socialize and blah, blah, blah. Yep, yep, exactly. Okay, so to recap, our macro criteria for a new location was we wanted to have no debt. Uh, we wanted to be reasonably close to family. We wanted to have a, a better gardening zone, at least a zone or two cooler for us. We wanted to have southern exposure of the of the property. We wanted a higher elevation. Uh, we wanted, um, you know, uh, at least uh, some consistent rainfall, low taxes, low building restrictions, and a state friendly to homeschooling. So now let's move on to talk about our micro criteria for new property. Okay, so those are all the things that we wanted for the area. Now what about, what was important to us specifically for the new house or the new property we were going to find? Well, these um, criteria were really difficult to find. We had to compromise on a lot of these. And I foolishly thought that, oh, you know, if you have this specific of criteria, it should be, it should make your property search a lot easier because why do you have to run around looking at all of these places? Either they have this or they don't, you know? <laughs> and you were frustrated no. for like a year looking at, because you couldn't believe we, we couldn't find went it. For, I mean, for two years, we looked at properties and it felt like every weekend we were driving and going to look at houses and... <laughs> Poor Maisie. I mean, she was young. <laughs> She's a trooper, though. Two or three at the time. Um, but she does great in the car. So she actually, she started to think we were going on vacations because right. we tried to make it fun for her. Every time we would go, we would try to find, you know, at least a, a playground or a park or something new that she could experience. And so now she has like this obsession with hotels and she always <laughs> wants to go stay in a hotel. And we're like, no, we don't need to anymore. No. And she's like, but it's vacation. <laughs> yeah, she loved it. She loved it. But, but you know, so it was hard to find the property, but we at least had a list of things that we had wished for. So what were those things? Fruit trees was a big thing. Um, you know, that is something that, it takes a long time to get established. And so if you can find a place that has some old established fruit trees, I mean, that's, you're lucky, right. very lucky. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, um, sometimes you find like an old apple orchard or whatever, but it's amazing to me, you know, how many properties you look at that they have no fruit trees, even new ones that are quote, Way unquote, more than the majority of them. Oh, it's even new ones that describe themselves as being self-sufficient homesteads or whatever, and there's not a fruit tree on there. It's like, dude, that's the first thing you plant. If you move to a new property and you think about how to set it up, before you build the house, before you do anything, you plant your long-term fruit trees and nut trees because it takes them a long time to grow. The best time to plant a tree was, what, 40 years ago? So you got to get to that. And we had an idea of how many acres we wanted, you know, which is funny because I remember when we first started looking for a farm, I was thinking, oh, I don't know, like 50 acres or so. And in comes Tim with, no, let's get like 150. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the early days, right. <laughs> well, now we've learned that that's too much to take care of if you're just going to homestead. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, when we started looking for a homestead, I remember you were very specific as we looked at properties. You were adamant that you wanted at least 20 acres, you said. That was your number. And, you know, I want to talk about that for a second for people who are looking at property, because one of the things I told you in my view was I thought that I agree with you on at least 20 acres, but it depends on where the land is. If you're looking at, you know, serrated mountainside, 
you know, where, um, you know, you, you get into the mountains of, um, you know, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, Western North Carolina, Tennessee, Eastern Tennessee, those kind of places. I mean, five acres is a lot because there's, you can't see anybody, hear anybody or anything because you got the mountain ridges. On the other hand, if you're in the middle of a, of a prairie, 20 acres is nothing. So it's a little situational, but I, I, I think that we agreed that we wanted enough land to feel really, really private. And it's different too, if you have a lot of woods versus a lot of open land, like you were saying with the prairie. So we knew that we wanted probably about three to five acres that are open for animals, you know, areas that we could either have established pasture or make pasture. But the rest, we really did want it all in woods because we didn't have to, we didn't want to have to worry about maintaining those open lands, but we still wanted the buffer of land around us. Yeah. And the three to five acres of pasture was important because from a homesteader point of view, we wanted to have a milk cow. We wanted to raise our own beef. We wanted to have pigs. We wanted to have, you know, uh, laying hens and we wanted to have meat chickens. And, you know, we're setting up the same things this, in terms of animals that we had before, rabbits, chickens and everything else. But we didn't want to have that for farming for other people. So how much do you really need for a family of three? I mean, one one beef cow that you process, you know, every year and a half or whatever is plenty enough meat for us. So we didn't need that much land. And if you have excess pasture, you then are faced with the same pressures that we had before. Well, now I've got to maintain. I'm either going to be out there mowing all the time or bush hogging or haying or whatever. And we didn't want to set up for that. So ideally, we were looking for two to five acres of open land and the rest to be in the woods that we could use for hunting, foraging, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the water was non-negotiable. I mean, if we even saw a listing that said public water, we were like, nope, pass. Yeah. <laughs> we had to have a well and a good well. You really were adamant about having gravity-fed water, right. but that's impossible to find. It's not impossible. We found it in a couple of places, but we found it on land that wasn't uh, that you weren't interested in. It was either for other criteria, and, and I support you for that. The reason you weren't interested is it was either too serrated of mountain property because we want to be rural, right? But we didn't want to have one of those places where you got to drive those winding switchback roads to get to your house. And the other reason that you didn't like some of those properties is, well, we would have to drive an hour and a half or whatever to remotely have an opportunity for our daughter to have a play group or whatever because we were so far away from anybody. And you did compromise by saying, well, as long as there's water on the property, if there's a creek or something so right. that, you know, maybe it's not gravity fed to your house, but in an emergency situation, you can go down and get water. There is always water flowing. Yeah. From a preparedness point of view, if you've got a creek on your property or whatever, you know, you're going to have water. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to want to do a pre-filter and then do a filter of the water uh, through your big Berkey or your sand filter or whatever it is that you make. But at least, you know, you're going to have water that you can get to. And um, I would at least want to have a property that I felt confident there were springs on the property, which, of course, is what we ended up settling on and getting. But another criteria we had that was important to us uh, was no be, the house being in no sight of a paved road. And, you know, this is where, you know, the, the Internet makes it a lot easier when you're looking for homestead. You get these addresses, you go to a Google Maps or whatever, look at the property, and you see, wow, this property sounds perfect. And then you look at it, and it's right 50 feet away from the road. Yeah, this is one, anytime that I talked to a realtor, if I called about a property, I would always feel so weird saying to them because I would just hear like nothing on the other end of the phone. And I would say, well, we really, we don't want to see any roads or any neighbors. And then there would just be silence like, 
what are you? Like, are you some <laughs> kind of, what are you hiding? Are you a recluse? You know, it's like, no, we just, we like our privacy. We want to be, you know, on our land in our own little world. I, I, I can imagine, honestly, how weird we sound to people. I mean, we're not <laughs> weird people, but I, I, I you know, I got to believe this. People listen to this and go, man, these have got a bunch of weirdos. They just want to go, you know, uh, just live undercover. And that's not true, but we value our privacy. And it's hard to have privacy in this day and age. And one of the ways we can do that, at least, is let's not have a house right on the road where we're looking at people and they're seeing what we're doing here. I mean, They'd see me out there, you know, butchering a rabbit and stuff. And they're like, hey, man, what's that weird guy doing? Well, you know, we wanted a place where there was good hunting and foraging. And right. if you're on a road or if you've got a lot of neighbors around, you're not going to be going out hunting. You're not going to be, you know, target practice shooting. And your foraging gets really limited, too, because you certainly don't want to go forage for greens and things that are right on the road where all the car exhaust has gone by. Right, right, right. Exactly. And and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have a lot of woods around us so that we could have access to good hunting. I mean, look, if you're, if you're fortunate enough like we are, and, and we were in our last property, too, to have a lot of woods around you, you've got free meat. I mean, you just go deer hunting or you go turkey hunting or whatever. And that, those are not animals that you're having to put fences up for or to cut hay for or to provide grain to. That's, those are just animals that are growing in nature and they're there for free harvesting if you have that kind of land. So that was important to us. But another thing that was really important to us was to have a much smaller house. Why is that? Well, I mean, I just spent so much time cleaning it and we just were always making money to heat it, you know, or cool it. And it was rooms that we didn't even use. Um, and so we, that we were really excited to have a much smaller house. And we actually basically cut our house size in half. <laughs> we cut our house size in half, but we still have a good size house. I, I mean, compared to, you know, most people around, I mean... You know, the, yeah, the we could never live in a tiny house. Well, people back in the 50s, you know, lived in like these 1,100 square foot houses, a family of four or whatever. And to me, a small house today for like the way we live is, you know, 2,000 to 2,400 square feet is pretty small. But a lot of that's because of all the food storage and the kind of things that we do. Well, yeah, the way we use are, a house. I mean, pantry, right. we're home all day, every day. Um, you need an office to work. We need a homeschool room. You know, I mean, there is just a lot of things that we do in our house, the food storage, um, a huge kitchen for all the garden crops that we bring in and food preserving that we do. And, you know, it's funny that you don't really find a house like that anymore. People don't seem to use their house like that. What we found was a house with a small kitchen, a big family room, right. and then lots of little bedrooms, you know. And, well, we don't want to fill up all the bedrooms. We don't really need a big family room. We go outside or something. But we wanted a huge kitchen, and that was the hardest thing to find. Yeah, we, and we didn't find that necessarily. And, you know, what we found was this, you know, this person had a big, you know, a decent-sized master bedroom with a big walk-in closet. So the first thing we did was we put a wall up on the door to close the walk-in closet and then put another door in to face the kitchen. And I turned his walk-in closet into a huge walk-in pantry. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's enough to make them think that you're crazy, too. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't have many clothes to store. I mean, we have, like, three things that we wear. Yeah, the realtors would always show us, like, just the wrong things. You know, they go, <laughs> look at this huge master bedroom with, you know, uh, two walk-in closets. And we're thinking, look at all that wasted space. Uh, colossal <laughs> waste of space, yeah. So we wanted a smaller house. We wanted one ideally heated with wood. This is another thing that's surprising, you know, how hard it was to find. I mean, that... You know, everybody's got, everything's got a heat pump. 
mm-hmm. these days. I mean, you find some that are heated with wood, but then those are the ones that are in the middle of the boondocks or whatever that will miss out on some other criteria that we had that we'll talk about in a second. Um, so it was hard to find, but ideally we wanted to heat with wood and to be able to harvest the wood on our property. And to harvest the wood on your property, it means not just having a wood lot, but having the right kind of trees, because there's a lot of trees that you can find on your property that, you know, aren't really good for burning. So you'll have to research the wood if you're looking for a homestead to see if that's the type of wood that you want to burn um, in a wood stove or fireplace. And we actually would have been able to find a lot of those criteria if it weren't for this one, that we wanted to be within an hour of a sizable town and 30 minutes of a small town that has a grocery store and a hospital. Yeah, and, and our definition of a sizable town is kind of like where we used to live. We were an hour from Athens, Georgia, and Athens, Georgia is a really cool town, and it's got great restaurants, and it's got some fun things to do. We didn't want to be within an hour of a city, like something like Atlanta or Boston or Washington or those kind of places. No way. Um, we wanted to be within an hour of, you know, just a mid-sized fun town. It, you know, it's, it's cool sometimes that they're university towns because there's a lot of stuff going on there. But like you said, then within 30 minutes of, you know, like the town we used to live in, like Elberton or whatever, where you can get groceries and, you know, you can go find some emergency stuff and have a hospital or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that was important to us. And that made it hard, um, you know, to find because, you know, you find the property's got those other things, but we found some good properties. But then you got to drive a long ways or a treacherous drive to get to anything. And we even found some states that um, on our macro criteria that maybe the state was homeschool friendly. But when we found the rural area where, you know, they had a house and property that we liked, there weren't enough people around to support any kind of a homeschool group or anything like that or, you know, a real culture of homesteading because everybody was so far apart. Right. Um, and so it was hard, really hard to find a balance there. Homeschooling is hard because when you, you can find a lot of places that have homeschool groups, but they're 90% religious. And if you're Christian and if you're a diehard Christian, that's perfect for you, but we're not. And, you know, I'm not, I probably shouldn't say that because there goes half my podcast listeners who are like, well, I thought that you were, you know, diehard Christian. I mean, you know, our religion is more mother nature and doing all the living, a lot of the tenants that my Christian friends live, but I didn't necessarily want to find groups that, we're going to be t- uh, preaching and teaching only that as opposed to teaching the learning experiences that we wanted to teach to our daughter. So that made it challenging for someone like us. It's almost like there's not a group, you know, for people like us. Yeah. I, I probably shouldn't have said that, huh? I don't know. I don't, I, let's change <laughs> okay. the subject. They're, 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 they're tuning out. Well, you know, it's, I don't, you know, if you're very, very religious, like most of my family is, you're allowed to say that and to encourage other people. But it's almost like if you're not, you're supposed to just be quiet and go in the corner. <laughs> and, you know, I'm coming out. I'm coming out today. It's my coming out party. So, you know, let's kind of recap, recap that because here, these were the micro criteria that we established that were important to us. We wanted fruit trees on the property that were already established. We wanted to have at least a certain number of acres. We said 20 at a minimum, but ideally we were looking for like 40 to 50 kind of acres. We wanted good gravity fed water or well water on the property. We did not want to be in sight of a paved road. We wanted no sight of neighbors. We love the idea of neighbors, but we wanted to have our privacy. We wanted to have good hunting and foraging on our property. We wanted to have a much smaller house, ideally heated with wood. We needed pasture, but no more than a few acres. And we wanted to be within an hour of a sizable town. 
and 30 minutes of, you know, necessities like a hospital and a grocery store. And finally, we wanted to be around like-minded people. So we wanted to find a locale where if you say you're homeschool or you homestead and you raise your own chickens and you butcher your own animals, you know, or you do some uh, micro farming, that you're not weird that other people do the same thing. So those were our specific criteria for the property. Now, we're going to close out the last section with things that we knew weren't critical because we had learned that before. Okay, honey, we're back. Now, just for a few minutes to kind of close up this whole thing on looking for our new homestead, we had learned that some things that that weren't important in looking for property that realtors often think are important or home buyers often think are important. So what are some of those things that we weren't looking for? Yeah. I mean, we were constantly just stopping the realtors in their tracks saying, no, that's okay. Thank you. But we're not interested in that. You know, I mean, the first thing that they would try to preach to us is, oh, the school systems here are wonderful. And we say, that's great. We're not going to use it. (laughs) (laughs) You're what? And then the realtor backs up and gets farther away from us. And then we say, we want to be out of sight of anybody. And then she backs up farther. (laughs) Yeah, And then they would say, oh, and look at all the fencing that's put up already for you on the property. And we're looking saying, yeah, but that's not where we want it. We're going to have to take it all down. <laughs> right, right. Because we had we had made mistakes, you know, with our fencing before that created the wrong lines and it was difficult to maintain. So that wasn't really important to us at all. And, um, you know, the home, the school system meant nothing if you're homeschooling, being, being around people who homeschool. So we always asked the lady or the or the man who was showing us the property, do you know if there's many homeschoolers around here? And, you know, often they wouldn't know the answer to that because mm-hmm. that's not criteria that they normally run across. Right. And, um, you know, outbuildings, um, which can be good, can be bad. But a lot of times we would see on a listing that there are, oh, so many outbuildings and everything. And then we would get there to look at them and the outbuildings are falling apart. And, you know, they were going to need so much repair just to get them usable again. Or they would be in the wrong location for us. I mean, do you remember there was one house that we saw and it was a beautiful property and the chicken coop, which we were so excited that the listing said there was a chicken coop because you never see that. It was down by the road, like so far away from the house. And we're thinking, well, who's going to let their chickens be that far away with all these predators around? That's right. They were all set up wrong. And another thing that sometimes a realtor would talk about is this high quality pasture or whatever. And listen, that's nice if you can find it. But we knew firsthand how to create high quality pasture. Um, You know, so, you know, and it's not a long process to do that. So, um, you know, that wasn't something that we valued if they, you know, that was not nearly as important as the micro criteria we just talked about a second ago. Yeah. So, I mean, we knew you can put up your own fencing, you can put up your own outbuildings, you can improve the pasture quality fairly easily with animals, and um, you can also build your own garden. So we definitely needed there to be an area, a sort of level area that, you know, was open and had sun exposure where we could put a garden in. But we didn't want to find a place that already had an existing garden because the chances of the previous owner doing it the way that we wanted to do were not very likely. So we wanted a space for a garden, but we didn't want an existing garden already. Yeah, because most rural gardens are going to be field gardens and, uh, you know, and they're going to have good soil, you know, because they've been gardening and that's that's a good thing. But we were going to build raised beds, you know, which we have done and we'll talk about. And, uh, you know, you don't have to do raised beds. Raised beds make a lot more sense in areas where you don't have as much space. When you live in the country with a lot of land, you don't have to do that. But we were doing that 
partly because we wanted to make it easier for us for weeding, partly because we have dogs we wanted to keep out of the garden, and, um, you know, partly cosmetically. We wanted to, when we created a new homestead, it wasn't just to be a functional homestead. We wanted it to be a beautiful homestead as well, so we wanted to create those gardens. And, you know, you don't—the soil is so important to us that you don't know how the previous person was using their garden. We don't put any chemicals in our right, garden. And right. that, you know, great if there's an existing garden, but what if for the past 15 years someone has been putting all kinds of chemicals and artificial fertilizers on it? So we were happy to have the space for it, but not to have an existing garden. We'd build our own. Thank you. Yeah, but what about finding a beautiful house that's lovely? Yeah, you know— it, That'd be nice, but it's not that important. You know, we wanted the house to be laid out in a way that we could use it. But all that cosmetic stuff just isn't important to us. Um, And if it were important to us, we would do it ourselves. You can change that part of the house. Yeah, I focused more on insulation than anything. So I was, you know, if it was not going to be a log cabin, you know, which it isn't, I was looking for two by six construction, really good insulation, really tight sound house that you know, would allow us to not waste any energy on heating or cooling the property. Yeah, I mean, so those are all the things that we weren't looking for. So (laughs) did we find anything? Well, you know, I didn't think that we were asking for that much, but we did just spend a half hour talking about our specific (laughs) criteria. So (laughs) maybe uh, actually we were. But, you know, it felt to me like the things that we were asking for were simple things. You know, It, it seemed to me that Um, you know, complicated things like you must have a house with granite countertops and, you know, spiral staircase or whatever, you know, it seems to me like those would be the difficult things. But in reality, those are the kind of houses and properties that there are now. And trying to find a property that's open and simple really doesn't exist. You remember how many houses we saw that only had bathtubs and not one shower? Yeah. That was a weird thing. Yeah. Why? Just because you want to live rurally, you know, and deep in the country, are you supposed to go without something? I'm not ashamed to say that I haven't had a bath in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I take an occasional shower, which, I'm, occasional. you know, when it rains, that's why I wanted frequent rain. But, you know, not in a, no, no, no way you're getting me in a bathtub. <laughs> so it took us two years of searching to the point where we were just so sick of it that we were like, oh gosh, we need to stop this. Let's just find something and make it work. And we did found something that would work. And we found something that met a lot of our criteria, not all of them. Some things that we decided, you know, we can add that or we can make that happen here. So it has the potential. And then there are other things that we said, look, we're just going to have to give up on them. We're just not going to be able to get those. Yep. Yeah. I gave up on gravity water, but you know, not on getting a good well and not on getting uh, running water on the property in terms of the creek. But we found a really great place that works for us. We've been busy for, gosh, almost all this year, for about a year now, setting up the property. So what do you say next episode in a couple of weeks, we start talking about what we've been doing to set up a homestead? Okay. You think you'll have something to say about that? I have a few things I can think of. All right. Well, wear your pajamas and we'll see you then. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Liz and I sharing how and why we opted out of the rat race. Perhaps it will give you some ideas and inspiration as you look for ways to become more self-sufficient wherever you are. Hey, FYI, the show notes from this episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. Please subscribe to the Self-Sufficient Life podcast on iTunes or elsewhere. And please take just a second right now to leave a review. It really helps with the rankings and allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. Okay, so until next week, 
I hope we've given you some ideas on how you can begin your process of opting out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door. Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for. A cup of coffee, four dollars gone. They stick me in a cubicle and now I'm somebody's pawn. The concrete jungles all around me. There's gotta be a better way. I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all day. While strangers teach and watch my children play. I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay. Not gonna live my life that way. I'm opting out today. So I can pay all I owe Kids wanna play But I always gotta go